英語聞き流しリスニング、英語テキストと MP3 音声ダウンロードはホームページからご利用いただけます。88thpp.com、88thpp.com。Tiger, Tiger, what of the hunting, hunter bold? Brother, the watch was long and cold. What of the quarry you went to kill? Brother, he crops in the jungle still. Where is the power that made your pride? Brother, it ebbs from my flank and side. Where is the haste that ye hurry by? Brother, I go to my lair to die. Now we must go back to the first tale. When Mowgli left the wolf's cave after the fight with the pack at the council rock, he went down to the ploughed lands where the villagers lived, but he would not stop there because it was too near to the jungle, and he knew that he had made at least one bad enemy at the council. So he hurried on, keeping to the rough road that ran down the valley. And followed it at a steady jog trot for nearly twenty miles, till he came to a country that he did not know. The valley opened out into a great plain dotted over with rocks and cut up by ravines. At one end stood a little village, and at the other the thick jungle came down in a sweep to the grazing grounds, and stopped there as though it had been cut off with a hoe. All over the plain, cattle and buffaloes were grazing, and when the little boys in charge of the herd saw Mowgli they shouted and ran away, and the yellow pariah dogs that hang about every Indian village barked. Mowgli walked on. For he was feeling hungry, and when he came to the village gate, he saw the big thorn bush that was drawn up before the gate at twilight, pushed to one side. Oomph, he said, for he had come across more than one such barricade in his night rambles after things to eat. So men are afraid of the people of the jungle here also. He sat down by the gate, and when a man came out, he stood up, opened his mouth, and pointed down it to show that he wanted food. The man stared, and ran back up the one street of the village shouting for the priest, who was a big, Fat man dressed in white, with a red and yellow mark on his forehead. The priest came to the gate, and with him at least a hundred people, who stared and talked and shouted and pointed at Mowgli. They have no manners, these men folk, said Mowgli to himself. Only the gray ape would behave as they do. So he threw back his long hair and frowned at the crowd. What is there to be afraid of? said the priest. Look at the marks on his arms and legs. They are the bites of wolves. He is but a wolf child run away from the jungle. Of course, in playing together, the cubs had often nipped Mowgli harder than they intended, and there were white scars all over his arms and legs. But he would have been the last person in the world to call these bites, for he knew what real biting meant. Arr! Arr! said two or three women together. To be bitten by wolves, poor child. He is a handsome boy. He has eyes like red fire. By my honor, Mesua, he is not unlike thy boy that was taken by the tiger. Let me look, said a woman with heavy copper rings on her wrists and ankles, and she peered at Mowgli under the palm of her hand. Indeed, he is not. He is thinner, but he has the very look of my boy. The priest was a clever man, and he knew that Mesua was wife to the richest villager in the place. So he looked up at the sky for a minute and said solemnly, What the jungle has taken, the jungle has restored. Take the boy into thy house, my sister, and forget not to honor the priest who sees so far into the lives of men. By the bull that bought me, Said Mowgli to himself, but all this talking is like another looking over by the pack. Well, if I am a man, a man I must become. The crowd parted as the woman beckoned Mowgli to her hut, where there was a red lacquered bedstead, a great earthen grain chest with funny raised patterns on it, half a dozen copper cooking pots, an image of a Hindu god in a little alcove, and on the wall a real looking glass, such as they sell at the country fairs. She gave him a long drink of milk and some bread, and then she laid her hand on his head and looked into his eyes. For she thought perhaps that he might be her real son come back from the jungle where the tiger had taken him. So she said, Nato, oh Nato. Mowgli did not show that he knew the name. Dost thou not remember the day when I gave thee thy new shoes? She touched his foot, and it was almost as hard as horn. No, she said sorrowfully, those feet have never worn shoes, but thou art very like my Nato, and thou shalt be my son. Mowgli was uneasy, because he had never been under a roof before. But as he looked at the thatch, He saw that he could tear it out any time if he wanted to get away, and that the window had no fastenings. What is the good of a man, he said to himself at last, if he does not understand man's talk? Now I am as silly and dumb as a man would be with us in the jungle. I must speak their talk. It was not for fun that he had learned while he was with the wolves to imitate the challenge of bucks in the jungle and the grunt of the little wild pig. So, as soon as Mesua pronounced a word, Mowgli would imitate it almost perfectly, and before dark he had learned the names of many things in the hut. There was a difficulty at bedtime, because Mowgli would not sleep under anything that looked so like a panther trap as that hut, and when they shut the door, he went through the window. 
Give him his will, said Mesua's husband. Remember he can never till now have slept on a bed. If he is indeed sent in the place of our son he will not run away. So Mowgli stretched himself in some long, clean grass at the edge of the field, but before he had closed his eyes a soft grey nose poked him under the chin. Phew, said Grey Brother, he was the eldest of Mother Wolf's cubs. This is a poor reward for following thee twenty miles. Thou smellest of wood smoke and cattle, altogether like a man already. Wake, little brother, I bring news. Are all well in the jungle? said Mowgli, hugging him. All except the wolves that were burned with the red flower. Now, listen. Shere Khan has gone away to hunt far off till his coat grows again, for he is badly singed. When he returns he swears that he will lay thy bones in the Wanganga. There are two words to that. I also have made a little promise. But news is always good. I am tired tonight, very tired with new things, grey brother, but bring me the news always. Thou wilt not forget that thou art a wolf? Men will not make thee forget. Said grey brother anxiously. Never. I will always remember that I love thee and all in our cave. But also I will always remember that I have been cast out of the pack. And that thou mayest be cast out of another pack. Men are only men, little brother, and their talk is like the talk of frogs in a pond. When I come down here again, I will wait for thee in the bamboos at the edge of the grazing ground. For three months after that night Mowgli hardly ever left the village gate, he was so busy learning the ways and customs of men. First he had to wear a cloth round him, which annoyed him horribly, and then he had to learn about money, which he did not in the least understand, and about ploughing, of which he did not see the use. Then the little children in the village made him very angry. Luckily, the law of the jungle had taught him to keep his temper, for in the jungle life and food depend on keeping your temper, but when they made fun of him because he would not play games or fly kites, or because he mispronounced some word, only the knowledge that it was unsportsmanlike to kill little naked cubs kept him from picking them up and breaking them in two. He did not know his own strength in the least. In the jungle he knew he was weak compared with the beasts, but in the village people said that he was as strong as a bull. And Mowgli had not the faintest idea of the difference that caste makes between man and man. When the potter's donkey slipped in the clay pit, Mowgli hauled it out by the tail, and helped to stack the pots for their journey to the market at Kaniwara. That was very shocking, too, for the potter is a low-caste man, and his donkey is worse. When the priest scolded him, Mowgli threatened to put him on the donkey too, and the priest told Mesua's husband that Mowgli had better be set to work as soon as possible, and the village headman told Mowgli that he would have to go out with the buffaloes next day, and herd them while they grazed. No one was more pleased than Mowgli, and that night, because he had been appointed a servant of the village, as it were, he went off to a circle that met every evening on a masonry platform under a great fig tree. It was the village club, and the headman and the watchman and the barber, who knew all the gossip of the village, and old Buldeo, the village hunter, who had a tower musket, met and smoked. The monkey sat and talked in the upper branches, and there was a hole under the platform where a cobra lived, and he had his little platter of milk every night because he was sacred, and the old men sat around the tree and talked, and pulled at the big harkas, the water pipes, till far into the night. They told wonderful tales of gods and men and ghosts, and Buldeo told even more wonderful ones of the ways of beasts in the jungle, till the eyes of the children sitting outside the circle bulged out of their heads. Most of the tales were about animals, for the jungle was always at their door. The deer and the wild pig grubbed up their crops, and now and again the tiger carried off a man at twilight, within sight of the village gates. Mowgli, who naturally knew something about what they were talking of, had to cover his face not to show that he was laughing, while Buldeo, the tower musket across his knees, climbed on from one wonderful story to another, and Mowgli's shoulders shook. Buldeo was explaining how the tiger that had carried away Mesua's son was a ghost tiger, and his body was inhabited by the ghost of a wicked, old moneylender who had died some years ago. And I know that this is true, he said, because Perun Das always limped from the blow that he got in a riot when his account books were burned, and the tiger that I speak of he limps, too, for the tracks of his pads are unequal. True, true, that must be the truth, said the greybeards, nodding together. Are all these tales such cobwebs and moon talk? said Mowgli. That tiger limps because he was born lame, as everyone knows. To talk of the soul of a moneylender in a beast that never had the courage of a jackal is child's talk. Buldeo was speechless with surprise for a moment, and the headman stared. Oh! It is the jungle brat, is it? said Buldeo. If thou art so wise, better bring his hide to Kaniwara, for the government has set a hundred rupees on his life. Better still, talk not when thy elders speak. Mowgli rose to go. All the evening I have lain here listening, 
he called back over his shoulder, and, except once or twice, Buldeo has not said one word of truth concerning the jungle, which is at his very doors. How, then, shall I believe the tales of ghosts and gods and goblins which he says he has seen? It is full time that boy went to herding, said the headman, while Buldeo puffed and snorted at Mowgli's impertinence. The custom of most Indian villages is for a few boys to take the cattle and buffaloes out to graze in the early morning, and bring them back at night. The very cattle that would trample a white man to death allow themselves to be banged and bullied and shouted at by children that hardly come up to their noses. So long as the boys keep with the herds they are safe, for not even the tiger will charge a mob of cattle. But if they straggle to pick flowers or hunt lizards, they are sometimes carried off. Mowgli went through the village street in the dawn, sitting on the back of Rama, the great herd bull. The slaty blue buffaloes, with their long, backward sweeping horns and savage eyes, rose out their byres, one by one, and followed him, and Mowgli made it very clear to the children with him that he was the master. He beat the buffaloes with a long, polished bamboo and told Kamiya, one of the boys, to graze the cattle by themselves, while he went on with the buffaloes, and to be very careful not to stray away from the herd. An Indian grazing ground is all rocks and scrub and tussocks and little ravines, among which the herd scatter and disappear. The buffaloes generally keep to the pools and muddy places, where they lie wallowing or basking in the warm mud for hours. Mowgli drove them on to the edge of the plain where the Wanganga came out of the jungle, then he dropped from Rama's neck, trotted off to a bamboo clump, and found Grey Brother. Ah, said Grey Brother, I have waited here very many days. What is the meaning of this cattle herding work? It is an order, said Mowgli. I am a village herd for a while. What news of Shere Khan? He has come back to this country, and has waited here a long time for thee. Now he has gone off again, for the game is scarce. But he means to kill thee. Very good, said Mowgli. So long as he is away do thou or one of the four brothers sit on that rock, so that I can see thee as I come out of the village. When he comes back wait for me in the ravine by the dock tree in the centre of the plain. We need not walk into Shere Khan's mouth. Then Mowgli picked out a shady place, and lay down and slept while the buffaloes grazed round him. Herding in India is one of the laziest things in the world. The cattle move and crunch, and lie down, and move on again, and they do not even low. They only grunt, and the buffaloes very seldom say anything, but get down into the muddy pools one after another, and work their way into the mud till only their noses and staring china blue eyes show above the surface, and then they lie like logs. The sun makes the rocks dance in the heat, and the herd children hear one kite, never any more, whistling almost out of sight overhead, and they know that if they died, or a cow died, that kite would sweep down, and the next kite miles away would see him drop and follow, and the next, and the next, and almost before they were dead there would be a score of hungry kites come out of nowhere. Then they sleep and wake and sleep again, and weave little baskets of dried grass and put grasshoppers in them, or catch two praying mantises and make them fight, or string a necklace of red and black jungle nuts, or watch a lizard basking on a rock, or a snake hunting a frog near the wallows. Then they sing long, long songs with odd native quavers at the end of them, and the day seems longer than most people's whole lives, and perhaps they make a mud castle with mud figures of men and horses and buffaloes, and put reeds into the men's hands, and pretend that they are kings and the figures of their armies, or that they are gods to be worshipped. Then evening comes and the children call, and the buffaloes lumber up out of the sticky mud with noises like gunshots going off one after the other, and they all string across the grey plain back to the twinkling village lights. Day after day Mowgli would lead the buffaloes out to their wallows, and day after day he would see Grey Brothers back a mile and a half away across the plain, so he knew that Shere Khan had not come back, and day after day he would lie on the grass listening to the noises round him, and dreaming of old days in the jungle. If Shere Khan had made a false step with his lame paw up in the jungles by the Wanganga, Mowgli would have heard him in those long, still mornings. At last a day came when he did not see Grey Brother at the signal place, and he laughed and headed the buffaloes for the ravine by the DHK tree, which was all covered with golden red flowers. There sat Grey Brother, every bristle on his back lifted. He has hidden for a month to throw thee off thy guard. He crossed the ranges last night with Tabaki, hotfoot on thy trail, said the wolf, panting. Mowgli frowned. I am not afraid of Shere Khan, but Tabaki is very cunning. Have no fear, said Grey Brother, licking his lips a little. I met Tabaki in the dawn. Now he is telling all his wisdom to the kites, but he told me everything before I broke his back. Shere Khan's plan is to wait for thee at the village gate this evening, for thee and for no one else. He is lying up now, in the big dry ravine of the Wanganga. Has he eaten today, or does he hunt empty? said Mowgli, for the answer meant life and death to him. He killed at dawn, a pig, and he has drunk too. 
Remember, Sherry Khan could never fast, even for the sake of revenge. Oh. Fool, fool. What a cub's cub it is. Eaten and drunk too, and he thinks that I shall wait till he has slept. Now, where does he lie up? If there were but ten of us we might pull him down as he lies. These buffaloes will not charge unless they wind him, and I cannot speak their language. Can we get behind his track so that they may smell it? He swam far down the Wanganga to cut that off, said Grey Brother. Tabaki told him that, I know. He would never have thought of it alone. Mowgli stood with his finger in his mouth, thinking. The big ravine of the Wanganga. That opens out on the plain not half a mile from here. I can take the herd round through the jungle to the head of the ravine and then sweep down, but he would slink out at the foot. We must block that end. Grey brother, canst thou cut the herd in two for me? Not I, perhaps, but I have brought a wise helper. Grey brother trotted off and dropped into a hole. Then there lifted up a huge grey head that Mowgli knew well, and the hot air was filled with the most desolate cry of all the jungle, the hunting howl of a wolf at midday. Akela! Akela, said Mowgli, clapping his hands. I might have known that thou wouldst not forget me. We have a big work in hand. Cut the herd in two, Akela. Keep the cows and calves together, and the bulls and the plough buffaloes by themselves. The two wolves ran, ladies' chain fashion, in and out of the herd, which snorted and threw up its head, and separated into two clumps. In one, the cow buffaloes stood with their calves in the center, and glared and pawed, ready, if a wolf would only stay still, to charge down and trample the life out of him. In the other, the bulls and the young bulls snorted and stamped, but though they looked more imposing they were much less dangerous, for they had no calves to protect. No six men could have divided the herd so neatly. What orders? Panted Akela. They are trying to join again. Mowgli slipped onto Rama's back. Drive the bulls away to the left, Akela. Grey brother, when we are gone, hold the cows together, and drive them into the foot of the ravine. How far? said Grey brother, panting and snapping. Till the sides are higher than Shere Khan can jump, shouted Mowgli. Keep them there till we come down. The bull swept off as Akela bayed, and Grey Brother stopped in front of the cows. They charged down on him, and he ran just before them to the foot of the ravine, as Akela drove the bulls far to the left. Well done. Another charge and they are fairly started. Careful, now, careful, Akela. A snap too much and the bulls will charge. Huja. This is wilder work than driving black buck. Didst thou think these creatures could move so swiftly? Mowgli called. I have, have hunted these two in my time, gasped Akela in the dust. Shall I turn them into the jungle? Eh. Hey. Turn. Swiftly turn them. Rama is mad with rage. Oh, if I could only tell him what I need of him today. The bulls were turned, to the right this time, and crashed into the standing thicket. The other herd children, watching with the cattle half a mile away, hurried to the village as fast as their legs could carry them, crying that the buffaloes had gone mad and run away. But Mowgli's plan was simple enough. All he wanted to do was to make a big circle uphill and get at the head of the ravine, and then take the bulls down it and catch Shere Khan between the bulls and the cows, for he knew that after a meal and a full drink Shere Khan would not be in any condition to fight or to clamber up the sides of the ravine. He was soothing the buffaloes now by voice, and Akela had dropped far to the rear, only whimpering once or twice to hurry the rearguard. It was a long, long circle, for they did not wish to get too near the ravine and give Shere Khan warning. At last Mowgli rounded up the bewildered herd at the head of the ravine on a grassy patch that sloped steeply down to the ravine itself. From that height you could see across the tops of the trees down to the plain below, but what Mowgli looked at was the sides of the ravine, and he saw with a great deal of satisfaction that they ran nearly straight up and down, while the vines and creepers that hung over them would give no foothold to a tiger who wanted to get out. Let them breathe, Akela, he said, holding up his hand. They have not winded him yet. Let them breathe. I must tell Shere Khan who comes. We have him in the trap. He put his hands to his mouth and shouted down the ravine, it was almost like shouting down a tunnel, and the echoes jumped from rock to rock. After a long time there came back the drawling, sleepy snarl of a full-fed tiger just waken. Who calls? said Shere Khan, and a splendid peacock fluttered up out of the ravine screeching. Aye, Mowgli. Cattle thief, it is time to come to the council rock. Down, hurry them down, Akela. Down, Rama, down. The herd paused for an instant at the edge of the slope, but Akela gave tongue in the full hunting yell, and they pitched over one after the other, just as steamers shoot rapids, the sand and stones spurting up round them. Once started, there was no chance of stopping, and before they were fairly in the bed of the ravine Rama winded Shere Khan and bellowed. Ha! Huh. 
Ha, said Mowgli, on his back. Now thou knowest. And the torrent of black horns, foaming muzzles, and staring eyes whirled down the ravine just as boulders go down in flood time, the weaker buffaloes being shouldered out to the sides of the ravine where they tore through the creepers. They knew what the business was before them, the terrible charge of the buffalo herd against which no tiger can hope to stand. Shere Khan heard the thunder of their hoofs, picked himself up, and lumbered down the ravine, looking from side to side for some way of escape, but the walls of the ravine were straight and he had to hold on, heavy with his dinner and his drink, willing to do anything rather than fight. The herd splashed through the pool he had just left, bellowing till the narrow cut rang. Mowgli heard an answering bellow from the foot of the ravine, saw Sherry Khan turn, the tiger knew if the worst came to the worst it was better to meet the bulls than the cows with their calves, and then Rama tripped, stumbled, and went on again over something soft, and, with the bulls at his heels, crashed full into the other herd, while the weaker buffaloes were lifted clean off their feet by the shock of the meeting. That charge carried both herds out into the plain, goring and stamping and snorting. Mowgli watched his time, and slipped off Rama's neck, laying about him right and left with his stick. Quick, Akela! Break them up! Scatter them, or they will be fighting one another! Drive them away, Akela! Hi, Rama! Hi, hi, hi! My children! Softly now, softly! It is all over! Akela and Grey Brother ran to and fro nipping the buffalo's legs, and though the herd wheeled once to charge up the ravine again, Mowgli managed to turn Rama, and the others followed him to the wallows. Shere Khan needed no more trampling. He was dead, and the kites were coming for him already. Brothers, that was a dog's death, said Mowgli, feeling for the knife he always carried in a sheath round his neck now that he lived with men. But he would never have shown fight. His hide will look well on the council rock. We must get to work swiftly. A boy trained among men would never have dreamed of skinning a ten-foot tiger alone, but Mowgli knew better than anyone else how an animal's skin is fitted on, and how it can be taken off. But it was hard work, and Mowgli slashed and tore and grunted for an hour, while the wolves lolled out their tongues, or came forward and tugged as he ordered them. Presently a hand fell on his shoulder, and looking up he saw Buldeo with the tower musket. The children had told the village about the buffalo stampede, and Buldeo went out angrily, only too anxious to correct Mowgli for not taking better care of the herd. The wolves dropped out of sight as soon as they saw the man coming. What is this folly? said Buldeo angrily. To think that thou canst skin a tiger. Where did the buffaloes kill him? It is the lame tiger too, and there is a hundred rupees on his head. Well, well, we will overlook thy letting the herd run off, and perhaps I will give thee one of the rupees of the reward when I have taken the skin to Kaniwara. He fumbled in his waist cloth for flint and steel, and stooped down to singe Sherry Khan's whiskers. Most native hunters always singe a tiger's whiskers to prevent his ghost from haunting them. Hum, said Mowgli, half to himself as he ripped back the skin of a forepaw. So thou wilt take the hide to Kaniwara for the reward, and perhaps give me one rupee? Now it is in my mind that I need the skin for my own use. Hey! Old man, take away that fire. What talk is this to the chief hunter of the village? Thy luck and the stupidity of thy buffaloes have helped thee to this kill. The tiger has just fed, or he would have gone twenty miles by this time. Thou canst not even skin him properly, little beggar brat, and forsooth I, Buldeo, must be told not to singe his whiskers. Mowgli, I will not give thee one anna of the reward, but only a very big beating. Leave the carcass. By the bull that bought me, said Mowgli, who was trying to get at the shoulder, must I stay babbling to an old ape all noon? Here, Akela, this man plagues me. Buldeo, who was still stooping over Shere Khan's head, found himself sprawling on the grass, with a grey wolf standing over him, while Mowgli went on skinning as though he were alone in all India. Yees, he said, between his teeth. Thou art altogether right, Buldeo. Thou wilt never give me one anna of the reward. There is an old war between this lame tiger and myself, a very old war, and, I have won. To do Buldeo justice, if he had been ten years younger he would have taken his chance with Akela had he met the wolf in the woods, but a wolf who obeyed the orders of this boy who had private wars with man-eating tigers was not a common animal. It was sorcery, magic of the worst kind, thought Buldeo, and he wondered whether the amulet round his neck would protect him. He lay as still as still, expecting every minute to see Mowgli turn into a tiger too. Maharaj! Great king, he said at last in a husky whisper. Yes, said Mowgli, without turning his head, chuckling a little. I am an old man. I did not know that thou wast anything more than a herdsboy. May I rise up and go away, or will thy servant tear me to pieces? Go, and peace go with thee. Only, another time do not meddle with my game. 
Let him go, Akela. Buldeo hobbled away to the village as fast as he could, looking back over his shoulder in case Mowgli should change into something terrible. When he got to the village he told a tale of magic and enchantment and sorcery that made the priest look very grave. Mowgli went on with his work, but it was nearly twilight before he and the wolves had drawn the great gay skin clear of the body. Now we must hide this and take the buffaloes home. Help me to herd them, Akela. The herd rounded up in the misty twilight, and when they got near the village Mowgli saw lights, and heard the conches and bells in the temple blowing and banging. Half the village seemed to be waiting for him by the gate. That is because I have killed Shere Khan, he said to himself. But a shower of stones whistled about his ears, and the villagers shouted, Sorcerer! Wolf's brat! Jungle demon! Go away! Get hence quickly or the priest will turn thee into a wolf again! Shoot, Boldeo, shoot! The old tower musket went off with a bang, and a young buffalo bellowed in pain. More sorcery, shouted the villagers. He can turn bullets. Boldeo, that was thy buffalo. Now what is this? said Mowgli, bewildered, as the stones flew thicker. They are not unlike the pack, these brothers of thine, said Akela, sitting down composedly. It is in my head that, if bullets mean anything, they would cast thee out. Wolf! Wolf's cub! Go away, shouted the priest, waving a sprig of the sacred Tulsi plant. Again? Last time it was because I was a man. This time it is because I am a wolf. Let us go, Akela. A woman, it was Mesua, ran across to the herd, and cried, Oh, my son, my son! They say thou art a sorcerer who can turn himself into a beast at will. I do not believe, but go away or they will kill thee. Boldeo says thou art a wizard, but I know thou hast avenged Nato's death. Come back, Mesua, shouted the crowd. Come back, or we will stone thee. Mowgli laughed a little short ugly laugh, for a stone had hit him in the mouth. Run back, Mesua. This is one of the foolish tales they tell under the big tree at dusk. I have at least paid for thy son's life. Farewell, and run quickly, for I shall send the herd in more swiftly than their brickbats. I am no wizard, Mesua. Farewell. Now, once more, Akela, he cried. Bring the herd in. The buffaloes were anxious enough to get to the village. They hardly needed Akela's yell, but charged through the gate like a whirlwind, scattering the crowd right and left. Keep count, shouted Mowgli scornfully. It may be that I have stolen one of them. Keep count, for I will do your hurting no more. Fare you well, children of men, and thank Mesua that I do not come in with my wolves and hunt you up and down your street. He turned on his heel and walked away with the lone wolf, and as he looked up at the stars he felt happy. No more sleeping in traps for me, Akela. Let us get Sherry Khan's skin and go away. No, we will not hurt the village, for Mesua was kind to me. When the moon rose over the plain, making it look all milky, the horrified villagers saw Mowgli, with two wolves at his heels and a bundle on his head, trotting across at the steady wolf's trot that eats up the long miles like fire. Then they banged the temple bells and blew the conches louder than ever. And Mesua cried, and Boldeo embroidered the story of his adventures in the jungle, till he ended by saying that Akela stood up on his hind legs and talked like a man. The moon was just going down when Mowgli and the two wolves came to the hill of the council rock, and they stopped at Mother Wolf's cave. They have cast me out from the man-pack, Mother, shouted Mowgli, but I come with the hide of Shere Khan to keep my word. Mother Wolf walked stiffly from the cave with the cubs behind her, and her eyes glowed as she saw the skin. I told him on that day, when he crammed his head and shoulders into this cave, hunting for thy life, little frog, I told him that the hunter would be the hunted. It is well done. Little brother, it is well done, said a deep voice in the thicket. We were lonely in the jungle without thee, and Bagheera came running to Mowgli's bare feet. They clambered up the council rock together, and Mowgli spread the skin out on the flat stone where Akela used to sit, and pegged it down with four slivers of bamboo, and Akela lay down upon it, and called the old call to the council, Look, look well, O oh wolves, exactly as he had called when Mowgli was first brought there. Ever since Akela had been deposed, the pack had been without a leader, hunting and fighting at their own pleasure but they answered the call from habit, and some of them were lame from the traps they had fallen into, and some limped from shot wounds, and some were mangy from eating bad food, and many were missing. But they came to the council rock, all that were left of them, and saw Shere Khan's striped hide on the rock, and the huge claws dangling at the end of the empty dangling feet. It was then that Mowgli made up a song that came up into his throat all by itself, and he shouted it aloud, leaping up and down on the rattling skin, and beating time with his heels till he had no more breath left, while Grey Brother and Akela howled between the verses. Look well, O oh wolves! 
Have I kept my word? said Mowgli. And the wolves bade yes, and one tattered wolf howled. Lead us again, O Akela. Lead us again, O man-cub, for we be sick of this lawlessness, and we would be the free people once more. Nay, purred Bagheera, that may not be. When ye are full-fed, the madness may come upon you again. Not for nothing are ye called the free people. Ye fought for freedom, and it is yours. Eat it, O wolves. Man-pack and wolf-pack have cast me out, said Mowgli. Now I will hunt alone in the jungle. And we will hunt with thee, said the four cubs. So Mowgli went away and hunted with the four cubs in the jungle from that day on. But he was not always alone because, years afterward, he became a man and married. But that is a story for grown-ups. Mowgli's Song That he sang at the Council Rock when he danced on Shere Khan's hide the song of Mowgli, I, Mowgli, am singing. Let the jungle listen to the things I have done. Shere Khan said he would kill, would kill. At the gates in the twilight he would kill Mowgli, the frog. He ate and he drank. Drink deep, Shere Khan, for when wilt thou drink again? Sleep and dream of the kill. I am alone on the grazing grounds. Grey brother, come to me. Come to me, lone wolf, for there is big game afoot. Bring up the great bull buffaloes, the blue-skinned bulls with the angry eyes. Drive them to and fro as I order. Sleepest thou still, Shere Khan? Wake, oh, wake. Here come I, and the bulls are behind. Rama, the king of the buffaloes, stamped with his foot. Waters of the Wanganga, whither went Shere Khan. He is not Iki to dig holes, nor Mao, the peacock, that he should fly. He is not Mon the bat, to hang in the branches. Little bamboos that creak together, tell me where he ran. Ow. He is there. Ahu. He is there. Under the feet of Rama lies the lame one. Up, Shere Khan. Up and kill. Here is meat, break the necks of the bulls. HSH. He is asleep. We will not wake him, for his strength is very great. The kites have come down to see it. The black ants have come up to know it. There is a great assembly in his honor. Alala. I have no cloth to wrap me. The kites will see that I am naked. I am ashamed to meet all these people. Lend me thy coat, Shere Khan. Lend me thy gay-striped coat that I may go to the council rock. By the bull that bought me I made a promise, a little promise. Only thy coat is lacking before I keep my word. With the knife, with the knife that men use, with the knife of the hunter, I will stoop down for my gift. Waters of the Wanganga, Shere Khan gives me his coat for the love that he bears me. Pull, grey brother. Pull, Akela. Heavy is the hide of Shere Khan. The man-pack are angry. They throw stones and talk child's talk. My mouth is bleeding. Let me run away. Through the night, through the hot night, run swiftly with me, my brothers. We will leave the lights of the village and go to the low moon. Waters of the Wanganga, the man-pack have cast me out. I did them no harm, but they were afraid of me. Why? Wolf-pack, ye have cast me out too. The jungle is shut to me and the village gates are shut. Why? As Mong flies between the beasts and birds, so fly I between the village and the jungle. Why? I dance on the height of Shere Khan, but my heart is very heavy. My mouth is cut and wounded with the stones from the village, but my heart is very light, because I have come back to the jungle. Why? These two things fight together in me as the snakes fight in the spring. The water comes out of my eyes, yet I laugh while it falls. Why? I am two moguls, but the hide of Shere Khan is under my feet. All the jungle knows that I have killed Shere Khan. Look, look well, O oh wolves. Ahi. My heart is heavy with the things that I do not understand. The White Seal. Oh. Hush thee, my baby, the night is behind us, and black are the waters that sparkled so green. The moon, or the commerce, looks downward to find us at rest in the hollows that rustle between. Where billow meets billow, then soft be thy pillow, ah, where we flipperling, curl at thy ease. The storm shall not wake thee, nor shark overtake thee, asleep in the arms of the slow-swinging seas. Seal lullaby. All these things happened several years ago at a place called Novastoshna, or Northeast Point, on the island of St. Paul, away and away in the Bering Sea. Limmershin, the winter wren, told me the tale when he was blown onto the rigging of a steamer going to Japan, and I took him down into my cabin and warmed and fed him for a couple of days till he was fit to fly back to St. Paul's again. Limmershin is a very quaint little bird, but he knows how to tell the truth. Nobody comes to Novastoshna except on business, and the only people who have regular business there are the seals. They come in the summer months by hundreds and hundreds of thousands out of the cold grey sea. For Novastoshna Beach has the finest accommodation for seals of any place in all the world. 
Sea Catch knew that, and every spring would swim from whatever place he happened to be in, would swim like a torpedo boat straight for Novastoshina and spend a month fighting with his companions for a good place on the rocks, as close to the sea as possible. Sea Catch was 15 years old, a huge grey fur seal with almost a mane on his shoulders, and long, wicked dog teeth. When he heaved himself up on his front flippers he stood more than four feet clear of the ground, and his weight, if anyone had been bold enough to weigh him, was nearly 700 pounds. He was scarred all over with the marks of savage fights, but he was always ready for just one fight more. He would put his head on one side, as though he were afraid to look his enemy in the face, then he would shoot it out like lightning, and when the big teeth were firmly fixed on the other seal's neck, the other seal might get away if he could, but Sea Catch would not help him. Yet Sea Catch never chased a beaten seal, for that was against the rules of the beach. He only wanted room by the sea for his nursery. But as there were forty or fifty thousand other seals hunting for the same thing each spring, the whistling, bellowing, roaring, and blowing on the beach was something frightful. From a little hill called Hutchinson's Hill, you could look over three and a half miles of ground covered with fighting seals, and the surf was dotted all over with the heads of seals hurrying to land and begin their share of the fighting. They fought in the breakers, they fought in the sand, and they fought on the smooth worn basalt rocks of the nurseries, for they were just as stupid and unaccommodating as men. Their wives never came to the island until late in May or early in June, for they did not care to be torn to pieces, and the young two, three, and four-year-old seals who had not begun housekeeping went inland about half a mile through the ranks of the fighters and played about on the sand dunes in droves and legions, and rubbed off every single green thing that grew. They were called the Holoskiki, the Bachelors, and there were perhaps two or three hundred thousand of them at Novastoshna alone. Sea Catch had just finished his forty-fifth fight one spring when Matka, his soft, sleek, gentle-eyed wife, came up out of the sea, and he caught her by the scruff of the neck and dumped her down on his reservation, saying gruffly, late as usual. Where have you been? It was not the fashion for Sea Catch to eat anything during the four months he stayed on the beaches, and so his temper was generally bad. Matka knew better than to answer back. She looked round and cooed, how thoughtful of you. You've taken the old place again. I should think I had, said Sea Catch. Look at me. He was scratched and bleeding in twenty places, one I was almost out, and his sides were torn to ribbons. Oh, you men, you men, Matka said, fanning herself with her hind flipper. Why can't you be sensible and settle your places quietly? You look as though you had been fighting with the killer whale. I haven't been doing anything but fight since the middle of May. The beach is disgracefully crowded this season. I've met at least a hundred seals from Lacanon Beach, house hunting. Why can't people stay where they belong? I've often thought we should be much happier if we hauled out at Otter Island instead of this crowded place, said Matka. Bah! Only the Holoskiki go to Otter Island. If we went there they would say we were afraid. We must preserve appearances, my dear. Sea Catch sunk his head proudly between his fat shoulders and pretended to go to sleep for a few minutes, but all the time he was keeping a sharp lookout for a fight. Now that all the seals and their wives were on the land, you could hear their clamor miles out to sea above the loudest gales. At the lowest counting there were over a million seals on the beach, old seals, mother seals, tiny babies, and holoskiki, fighting, scuffling, bleeding, crawling, and playing together, going down to the sea and coming up from it in gangs and regiments, lying over every foot of ground as far as the eye could reach, and skirmishing about in brigades through the fog. It is nearly always foggy at Novastoshna, except when the sun comes out and makes everything look all pearly and rainbow-colored for a little while. Kodik, Matka's baby, was born in the middle of that confusion, and he was all head and shoulders, with pale, watery blue eyes, as tiny seals must be, but there was something about his coat that made his mother look at him very closely. Sea catch, she said, at last, our baby's going to be white. Empty clamshells and dry seaweed. Snorted sea catch. There never has been such a thing in the world as a white seal. I can't help that, said Maka, there's going to be now. And she sang the low, crooning seal song that all the mother seals sing to their babies. You mustn't swim till you're six weeks old, or your head will be sunk by your heels, and summer gales and killer whales are bad for baby seals. Are bad for baby seals, dear rat, as bad as bad can be, but splash and grow strong, and you can't be wrong. Child of the open sea. Of course the little fellow did not understand the words at first. He paddled and scrambled about by his mother's side, and learned to scuffle out of the way when his father was fighting with another seal, and the two rolled and roared up and down the slippery rocks. Matka used to go to sea to get things to eat, and the baby was fed only once in two days, but then he ate all he could and throve upon it. The first thing he did was to crawl inland, 
and there he met tens of thousands of babies of his own age, and they played together like puppies, went to sleep on the clean sand, and played again. The old people in the nurseries took no notice of them, and the holoskiki kept to their own grounds, and the babies had a beautiful playtime. When Matka came back from her deep-sea fishing she would go straight to their playground and call as a sheep calls for a lamb, and wait until she heard Kodak bleat. Then she would take the straightest of straight lines in his direction, striking out with her four flippers and knocking the youngster's head over heels right and left. There were always a few hundred mothers hunting for their children through the playgrounds, and the babies were kept lively. But, as Matka told Kodak, so long as you don't lie in muddy water and get mange, or rub the hard sand into a cut or scratch, and so long as you never go swimming when there is a heavy sea, nothing will hurt you here. Little seals can no more swim than little children, but they are unhappy till they learn. The first time that Kodak went down to the sea a wave carried him out beyond his depth, and his big head sank and his little hind flippers flew up exactly as his mother had told him in the song, and if the next wave had not thrown him back again he would have drowned. After that, he learned to lie in a beach pool and let the wash of the waves just cover him and lift him up while he paddled, but he always kept his eye open for big waves that might hurt. He was two weeks learning to use his flippers, and all that while he floundered in and out of the water, and coughed and grunted and crawled up the beach and took catnaps on the sand, and went back again, until at last he found that he truly belonged to the water. Then you can imagine the times that he had with his companions, ducking under the rollers, or coming in on top of a comber and landing with a swash and a splutter as the big wave went whirling far up the beach, or standing up on his tail and scratching his head as the old people did, or playing on the king of the castle on slippery, weedy rocks that just stuck out of the wash. Now and then he would see a thin fin, like a big shark's fin, drifting along close to shore, and he knew that that was the killer whale, the grampus, who eats young seals when he can get them, and Kodak would head for the beach like an arrow, and the fin would jig off slowly, as if it were looking for nothing at all. Late in October the seals began to leave St. Paul's for the deep sea, by families and tribes, and there was no more fighting over the nurseries, and the holoskiki played anywhere they liked. Next year, said Maka to Kodak, you will be a holoskiki, but this year you must learn how to catch fish. They set out together across the Pacific, and Maka showed Kodak how to sleep on his back with his flippers tucked down by his side and his little nose just out of the water. No cradle is so comfortable as the long, rocking swell of the Pacific. When Kodak felt his skin tingle all over, Matka told him he was learning the feel of the water, and that tingly, prickly feelings meant bad weather coming, and he must swim hard and get away. In a little time, she said, you'll know where to swim to, but just now we'll follow Sea Pig, the porpoise, for he is very wise. A school of porpoises were ducking and tearing through the water, and little Kodak followed them as fast as he could. How do you know where to go to? He panted. The leader of the school rolled his white eye and ducked under. My tail tingles, youngster, he said. That means there's a gale behind me. Come along. When you're south of the sticky water, he meant the equator, and your tail tingles, that means there's a gale in front of you and you must head north. Come along. The water feels bad here. This was one of very many things that Kodak learned, and he was always learning. Matka taught him to follow the cod and the halibut along the undersea banks and wrench the rockling out of his hole among the weeds, how to skirt the wrecks lying a hundred fathoms below water and dart like a rifle bullet in at one porthole and out at another as the fishes ran, how to dance on the top of the waves when the lightning was racing all over the sky, and wave his flipper politely to the stumpy-tailed albatross and the man of war hawk as they went down the wind, how to jump three or four feet clear of the water like a dolphin, flippers close to the side and tail curved, to leave the flying fish alone because they are all bony, to take the shoulder piece out of a cot at full speed ten fathoms deep, and never to stop and look at a boat or a ship, but particularly a rowboat. At the end of six months what Kodak did not know about deep-sea fishing was not worth the knowing. And all that time he never set flipper on dry ground. One day, however, as he was lying half asleep in the warm water somewhere off the island of Juan Fernandez, he felt faint and lazy all over, just as human people do when the spring is in their legs, and he remembered the good firm beaches of Novastoshna 7,000 miles away, the games his companions played, the smell of the seaweed, the seal roar, and the fighting. That very minute he turned north, swimming steadily, and as he went on he met scores of his mates, all bound for the same place, and they said, Greeting, Kodak. This year we are all holoskiki, and we can dance the fire dance and the breakers off the cannon and play on the new grass. But where did you get that coat? Kodak's fur was almost pure white now, and though he felt very proud of it, he only said, Swim quickly. My bones are aching for the land. And so they all came to the beaches where they had been born, and heard the old seals, their fathers, fighting in the rolling mist. That night Kodak danced the fire dance with the yearling seals. 
the sea is full of fire on summer nights all the way down from Novostoshna to Lakanon, and each seal leaves a wake like burning oil behind him in a flaming flash when he jumps, and the waves break in great phosphorescent streaks and swirls. Then they went inland to the Holoskiki grounds and rolled up and down in the new wild wheat and told stories of what they had done while they had been at sea. They talked about the Pacific as boys would talk about a wood that they had been nutting in, and if anyone had understood them he could have gone away and made such a chart of that ocean as never was. The three and four-year-old Holoskiki romped down from Hutchinson's Hill crying, out of the way, youngsters. The sea is deep and you don't know all that's in it yet. Wait till you've rounded the horn. Hi, you yearling, where did you get that white coat? I didn't get it, said Kodak. It grew. And just as he was going to roll the speaker over, a couple of black-haired men with flat red faces came from behind a sand dune, and Kodak, who had never seen a man before, coughed and lowered his head. The holoskiki just bundled off a few yards and sat staring stupidly. The men were no less than Karak Buterin, the chief of the seal hunters on the island, and Patalaman, his son. They came from the little village not half a mile from the sea nurseries, and they were deciding what seals they would drive up to the killing pens, for the seals were driven just like sheep, to be turned into sealskin jackets later on. Ho, oh, said Batalaman. Look. There's a white seal. Karak Buterin turned nearly white under his oil and smoke, for he was an Aleut, and Aleuts are not clean people. Then he began to mutter a prayer. Don't touch him, Batalaman. There has never been a white seal since, since I was born. Perhaps it is old Zaharov's ghost. He was lost last year in the big gale. I'm not going near him, said Patalaman. He's unlucky. Do you really think he is old Zaharov come back? I owe him for some gulls eggs. Don't look at him, said Karak. Head off that drove of four-year-olds. The man ought to skin two hundred today, but it's the beginning of the season and they are new to the work. A hundred will do. Quick. Patalaman rattled a pair of seal's shoulder bones in front of a herd of holoskiki and they stopped dead, puffing and blowing. Then he stepped near and the seals began to move, and Carrick headed them inland, and they never tried to get back to their companions. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of seals watched them being driven, but they went on playing just the same. Kodak was the only one who asked questions, and none of his companions could tell him anything, except that the men always drove seals in that way for six weeks or two months of every year. I am going to follow, he said, and his eyes nearly popped out of his head as he shuffled along in the wake of the herd. The white seal is coming after us cried Batalaman. That's the first time a seal has ever come to the killing grounds alone. HSH. Don't look behind you, said Carrick. It is Zaharov's ghost. I must speak to the priest about this. The distance to the killing grounds was only half a mile, but it took an hour to cover, because if the seals went too fast Carrick knew that they would get heated and then their fur would come off in patches when they were skinned. So they went on very slowly, past Sea Lion's Neck, past Webster House, till they came to the salt house just beyond the sight of the seals on the beach. Kodak followed, panting and wondering. He thought that he was at the world's end, but the roar of the seal nurseries behind him sounded as loud as the roar of a train in a tunnel. Then Carrick sat down on the moss and pulled out a heavy pewter watch and let the drove cool off for thirty minutes, and Kodak could hear the fog dew dripping off the brim of his cap. Then ten or twelve men, each with an iron-bound club three or four feet long, came up, and Carrick pointed out one or two of the drove that were bitten by their companions or too hot, and the men kicked those aside with their heavy boots made of the skin of a walrus's throat, and then Carrick said, let go. And then the men clubbed the seals on the head as fast as they could. Ten minutes later little Kodak did not recognize his friends anymore, for their skins were ripped off from the nose to the hind flippers, whipped off and thrown down on the ground in a pile. That was enough for Kodak. He turned and galloped. A seal can gallop very swiftly for a short time, back to the sea, his little new moustache bristling with horror. At Sea Lion's Neck, where the great sea lions sit on the edge of the surf, he flung himself flipper overhead into the cool water and rocked there, gasping miserably. What's here? said a sea lion gruffly, for as a rule the sea lions keep themselves to themselves. Scoopney. Oaken Scoopney. I'm lonesome, very lonesome, said Kodak. They're killing all the holoskiki on all the beaches. The sea lion turned his head inshore. Nonsense, he said. Your friends are making as much noise as ever. You must have seen old Carrick polishing off a drove. He's done that for thirty years. It's horrible, said Kodak, backing water as a wave went over him, and steadying himself with a screw stroke of his flippers that brought him all standing within three inches of a jagged edge of rock. Well done for a yearling, said the sea lion, who could appreciate good swimming. I suppose it is rather awful from your way of looking at it but if you seals will come here year after year, of course the men get to know of it, 
and unless you can find an island where no men ever come you will always be driven. Isn't there any such island? Began Kodak. I've followed the Paltus, the halibut, for twenty years, and I can't say I've found it yet. But look here, you seem to have a fondness for talking to your betters, suppose you go to Walrus Islet and talk to C. Vitch. He may know something. Don't flounce off like that. It's a six-mile swim, and if I were you I should haul out and take a nap first, little one. Kodak thought that that was good advice, so he swam round to his own beach, hauled out, and slept for half an hour, twitching all over, as seals will. Then he headed straight for Walrus Islet, a little low sheet of rocky island almost due northeast from Novastoshna, all ledges and rock and gulls' nests, where the walrus herded by themselves. He landed close to old Sea Vitch, the big, ugly, bloated, pimpled, fat-necked, long-tusked walrus of the North Pacific, who has no manners except when he is asleep, as he was then, with his hind flippers half in and half out of the surf. Wake up! barked Kodak, for the gulls were making a great noise. Ha! Ho! Humph! What's that? said Seavitch, and he struck the next walrus a blow with his tusks and waked him up, and the next struck the next, and so on till they were all awake and staring in every direction but the right one. Hi! It's me, said Kodak, bobbing in the surf and looking like a little white slug. Well! May I be, skinned, said Seavitch, and they all looked at Kodak as you can fancy a club full of drowsy old gentlemen would look at a little boy. Kodak did not care to hear any more about skinning just then, he had seen enough of it. So he called out, isn't there any place for seals to go where men don't ever come? Go and find out, said Seavitch, shutting his eyes. Run away. We're busy here. Kodak made his dolphin jump in the air and shouted as loud as he could, Clameter. Clameter. He knew that Seavitch never caught a fish in his life but always rooted for clams and seaweed, though he pretended to be a very terrible person. Naturally the chickies and the guvaruskis and the apakas, the burgomaster gulls and the kittiwakes and the puffins, who are always looking for a chance to be rude, took up the cry, and, so Limershin told me, for nearly five minutes you could not have heard a gun fired on Walrus Islet. All the population was yelling and screaming clam-eater. Starik, old man. While C. Vitch rolled from side to side grunting and coughing. Now will you tell? Said Kodak, all out of breath. Go and ask Sea Cow, said C. Vitch. If he is living still, he'll be able to tell you. How shall I know Sea Cow when I meet him? said Kodak, shearing off. He's the only thing in the sea uglier than Seavitch, screamed a burgomaster gull, wheeling under Seavitch's nose. Uglier, and with worse manners. Stark. Kodak swam back to Novastoshna, leaving the gulls to scream. There he found that no one sympathized with him in his little attempt to discover a quiet place for the seals. They told him that men had always driven the holoskiki, it was part of the day's work, and that if he did not like to see ugly things he should not have gone to the killing grounds but none of the other seals had seen the killing, and that made the difference between him and his friends. Besides, Kodak was a white seal. What you must do, said old Sea Catch, after he had heard his son's adventures, is to grow up and be a big seal like your father, and have a nursery on the beach, and then they will leave you alone. In another five years you ought to be able to fight for yourself. Even gentle Matka, his mother, said, you will never be able to stop the killing. Go and play in the sea, Kodak and Kodak went off and danced the fire dance with a very heavy little heart. That autumn he left the beach as soon as he could, and set off alone because of a notion in his bullet head. He was going to find Sea Cow, if there was such a person in the sea, and he was going to find a quiet island with good firm beaches for seals to live on, where men could not get at them. So he explored and explored by himself from the north to the south Pacific, swimming as much as 300 miles in a day and a night. He met with more adventures than can be told, and narrowly escaped being caught by the basking shark, and the spotted shark, and the hammerhead, and he met all the untrustworthy ruffians that loaf up and down the seas, and the heavy polite fish, and the scarlet spotted scallops that are moored in one place for hundreds of years, and grow very proud of it, but he never met sea cow, and he never found an island that he could fancy. If the beach was good and hard, with a slope behind it for seals to play on, there was always the smoke of a whaler on the horizon, boiling down blubber, and Kodak knew what that meant or else he could see that seals had once visited the island and been killed off, and Kodak knew that where men had come once they would come again. He picked up with an old stumpy-tailed albatross, who told him that Kregalan Island was the very place for peace and quiet, and when Kodak went down there he was all but smashed to pieces against some wicked black cliffs in a heavy sleet storm with lightning and thunder. Yet as he pulled out against the gale he could see that even there had once been a seal nursery. And it was so in all the other islands that he visited. Limershin gave a long list of them, 
for he said that Kotick spent five seasons exploring, with a four months rest each year at Novastoshna, when the Holoskiki used to make fun of him and his imaginary islands. He went to the Galapagos, a horrid dry place on the equator, where he was nearly baked to death, he went to the Georgia Islands, the Orkneys, Emerald Island, Little Nightingale Island, Goffs Island, Bouvet's Island, the Crossets, and even to a little speck of an island south of the Cape of Good Hope. But everywhere the people of the sea told him the same things. Seals had come to those islands once upon a time, but men had killed them all off. Even when he swam thousands of miles out of the Pacific and got to a place called Cape Corrientes, that was when he was coming back from Goffs Island, he found a few hundred mangy seals on a rock and they told him that men came there too. That nearly broke his heart, and he headed round the horn back to his own beaches, and on his way north he hauled out on an island full of green trees, where he found an old, old seal who was dying, and Kodak caught fish for him and told him all his sorrows. Now, said Kodak, I am going back to Novastoshna, and if I am driven to the killing pens with the Holoskiki I shall not care. The old seal said, try once more. I am the last of the lost rookery of Masafuera, and in the days when men killed us by the hundred thousand there was a story on the beaches that some day a white seal would come out of the north and lead the seal people to a quiet place. I am old, and I shall never live to see that day, but others will. Try once more. And Kodak curled up his mustache, it was a beauty, and said, I am the only white seal that has ever been born on the beaches, and I am the only seal, black or white, who ever thought of looking for new islands. This cheered him immensely, and when he came back to Novastoshna that summer, Matka, his mother, begged him to marry and settle down, for he was no longer a holoskick but a full-grown sea-catch, with a curly white mane on his shoulders, as heavy, as big, and as fierce as his father. Give me another season, he said. Remember, mother, it is always the seventh wave that goes farthest up the beach. Curiously enough, there was another seal who thought that she would put off marrying till the next year and Kodak danced the fire dance with her all down the cannon beach the night before he set off on his last exploration. This time he went westward, because he had fallen on the trail of a great shoal of halibut, and he needed at least 100 pounds of fish a day to keep him in good condition. He chased them till he was tired, and then he curled himself up and went to sleep on the hollows of the ground swell that sets into Copper Island. He knew the coast perfectly well, so about midnight, when he felt himself gently bumped on a wee bed, he said, hmm, tide's running strong tonight, and turning over underwater opened his eyes slowly and stretched. Then he jumped like a cat, for he saw huge things nosing about in the shoal water and browsing on the heavy fringes of the weeds. By the great combers of Magellan, he said, beneath his mustache. Who in the deep sea are these people? They were like no walrus, sea lion, seal, bear, whale, shark, fish, squid, or scallop that Kodak had ever seen before. They were between twenty and thirty feet long, and they had no hind flippers, but a shovel-like tail that looked as if it had been whittled out of wet leather. Their heads were the most foolish-looking things you ever saw, and they balanced on the ends of their tails in deep water when they weren't grazing, bowing solemnly to each other and waving their front flippers as a fat man waves his arm. Ahem, said Kodak. Good sport, gentlemen? The big things answered by bowing and waving their flippers like the frog footmen. When they began feeding again Kodak saw that their upper lip was split into two pieces that they could twitch apart about a foot and bring together again with a whole bushel of seaweed between the splits. They tucked the stuff into their mouths and chumped solemnly. Messy style of feeding, that, said Kodak. They bowed again, and Kodak began to lose his temper. Very good, he said. If you do happen to have an extra joint in your front flipper you needn't show off so. I see you bow gracefully, but I should like to know your names. The split lips moved and twitched and the glassy green eyes stared, but they did not speak. Well, said Kodak. You're the only people I've ever met uglier than C. Vich, and with worse manners. Then he remembered in a flash what the burgomaster gull had screamed to him when he was a little yearling at Walrus Islet, and he tumbled backward in the water, for he knew that he had found sea cow at last. The sea cows went on slooping and grazing and chumping in the weed, and Kodak asked them questions in every language that he had picked up in his travels, and the sea people talked nearly as many languages as human beings but the sea cows did not answer because sea cow cannot talk. He has only six bones in his neck where he ought to have seven, and they say under the sea that that prevents him from speaking even to his companions. But, as you know, he has an extra joint in his foreflipper, and by waving it up and down and about he makes what answers to a sort of clumsy telegraphic code. By daylight Kodak's mane was standing on end and his temper was gone where the dead crabs go. Then the sea cow began to travel northward very slowly, stopping to hold absurd bowing councils from time to time, and Kodak followed them, saying to himself, 
People who are such idiots as these are would have been killed long ago if they hadn't found out some safe island. And what is good enough for the sea cow is good enough for the sea catch. All the same, I wish they'd hurry. It was weary work for Kodak. The herd never went more than 40 or 50 miles a day, and stopped to feed at night, and kept close to the shore all the time, while Kodak swam round them, and over them, and under them, but he could not hurry them up one half mile. As they went farther north they held a bowing council every few hours, and Kodak nearly bit off his mustache with impatience till he saw that they were following up a warm current of water, and then he respected them more. One night they sank through the shiny water, sank like stones, and for the first time since he had known them began to swim quickly. Kodak followed, and the pace astonished him, for he never dreamed that Sea Cow was anything of a swimmer. They headed for a cliff by the shore, a cliff that ran down into deep water, and plunged into a dark hole at the foot of it, twenty fathoms under the sea. It was a long, long swim, and Kodak badly wanted fresh air before he was out of the dark tunnel they led him through. My wig, he said, when he rose, gasping and puffing, into open water at the farther end. It was a long dive, but it was worth it. The sea cows had separated and were browsing lazily along the edges of the finest beaches that Kodak had ever seen. There were long stretches of smooth worn rock running for miles, exactly fitted to make seal nurseries, and there were playgrounds of hard sand sloping inland behind them, and there were rollers for seals to dance in, and long grass to roll in, and sand dunes to climb up and down, and, best of all, Kodak knew by the feel of the water, which never deceives a true sea catch, that no man had ever come there. The first thing he did was to assure himself that the fishing was good, and then he swam along the beaches and counted up the delightful low sandy islands half-hidden in the beautiful rolling fog. Away to the northward, out to sea, ran a line of bars and shoals and rocks that would never let a ship come within six miles of the beach, and between the islands and the mainland was a stretch of deep water that ran up to the perpendicular cliffs, and somewhere below the cliffs was the mouth of the tunnel. It's Novastoshna over again, but ten times better, said Kodak. Sea cow must be wiser than I thought. Men can't come down the cliffs, even if there were any men, and the shoals to seaward would knock a ship to splinters. If any place in the sea is safe, this is it. He began to think of the seal he had left behind him, but though he was in a hurry to go back to Novastoshna, he thoroughly explored the new country, so that he would be able to answer all questions. Then he dived and made sure of the mouth of the tunnel, and raced through to the southward. No one but a sea cow or a seal would have dreamed of there being such a place, and when he looked back at the cliffs even Kodak could hardly believe that he had been under them. He was six days going home, though he was not swimming slowly, and when he hauled out just above Sea Lion's Neck the first person he met was the seal who had been waiting for him, and she saw by the look in his eyes that he had found his island at last. But the Holoskikian sea catch, his father, and all the other seals laughed at him when he told them what he had discovered, and a young seal about his own age said, This is all very well, Kodak, but you can't come from no one knows where and order us off like this. Remember we've been fighting for our nurseries, and that's a thing you never did. You preferred prowling about in the sea. The other seals laughed at this, and the young seal began twisting his head from side to side. He had just married that year, and was making a great fuss about it. I've no nursery to fight for, said Kodak. I only want to show you all a place where you will be safe. What's the use of fighting? Oh, if you're trying to back out, of course I've no more to say, said the young seal with an ugly chuckle. Will you come with me if I win? said Kodak. And a green light came into his eye, for he was very angry at having to fight at all. Very good, said the young seal carelessly. If you win, I'll come. He had no time to change his mind, for Kodak's head was out and his teeth sunk in the blubber of the young seal's neck. Then he threw himself back on his haunches and hauled his enemy down the beach, shook him, and knocked him over. Then Kodak roared to the seals, I've done my best for you these five seasons past. I've found you the island where you'll be safe, but unless your heads are dragged off your silly necks you won't believe. I'm going to teach you now. Look out for yourselves. Limmershin told me that never in his life, and Limmershin sees 10,000 big seals fighting every year, never in all his little life did he see anything like Kodak's charge into the nurseries. He flung himself at the biggest sea catch he could find, caught him by the throat, choked him and bumped him and banged him till he grunted for mercy, and then threw him aside and attacked the next. You see, Kodak had never fasted for four months as the big seals did every year, and his deep-sea swimming trips kept him in perfect condition, and, best of all, he had never fought before. His curly white mane stood up with rage, and his eyes flamed, and his big dog teeth glistened, and he was splendid to look at. Old Sea Catch, his father, saw him tearing past, hauling the grizzled old seals about as though they had been halibut, and upsetting the young bachelors in all directions, and Sea Catch gave a roar and shouted, 
he may be a fool, but he is the best fighter on the beaches. Don't tackle your father, my son. He's with you. Kodak roared in answer, and old sea catch waddled in with his mustache on end, blowing like a locomotive, while Matka and the seal that was going to marry Kodak cowered down and admired their menfolk. It was a gorgeous fight, for the two fought as long as there was a seal that dared lift up his head, and when there were none they paraded grandly up and down the beach side by side, bellowing. At night, just as the northern lights were winking and flashing through the fog, Kodak climbed a bare rock and looked down on the scattered nurseries and the torn and bleeding seals. Now, he said, I've taught you your lesson. My wig, said old sea catch, boosting himself up stiffly, for he was fearfully mauled. The killer whale himself could not have cut them up worse. Son, I'm proud of you, and what's more, I'll come with you to your island, if there is such a place. Hear you, fat pigs of the sea. Who comes with me to the sea cow's tunnel? Answer, or I shall teach you again, roared Kodak. There was a murmur like the ripple of the tide all up and down the beaches. We will come, said thousands of tired voices. We will follow Kodak, the white seal. Then Kodak dropped his head between his shoulders and shut his eyes proudly. He was not a white seal anymore, but red from head to tail. All the same he would have scorned to look at or touch one of his wounds. A week later he and his army, nearly 10,000 Holoskiki and old seals, went away north to the sea cow's tunnel, Kodak leading them and the seals that stayed at Novostoshna called them idiots. But next spring, when they all met off the fishing banks of the Pacific, Kodak seals told such tales of the new beaches beyond Sea Cow's Tunnel that more and more seals left Novostoshna. Of course it was not all done at once, for the seals are not very clever, and they need a long time to turn things over in their minds, but year after year more seals went away from Novostoshna, and Lakanon, and the other nurseries, to the quiet, sheltered beaches where Kodak sits all the summer through, getting bigger and fatter and stronger each year, while the holoskiki play around him, in that sea where no man comes. Lakanon. This is the great deep sea song that all the St. Paul seals sing when they are heading back to their beaches in the summer. It is a sort of very sad seal national anthem. I met my mates in the morning, and, oh, but I am old, where roaring on the ledges the summer groundswell rolled. I heard them lift the chorus that drowned the breaker's song, the beaches of Lacanon, two million voices strong. The song of pleasant stations beside the salt lagoons, the song of blowing squadrons that shuffled down the dunes, the song of midnight dances that churned the sea to flame, the beaches of Lacanon, before the sealers came. I met my mates in the morning, I'll never meet them more, they came and went in legions that darken all the shore. And o'er the foam flecked offing as far as voice could reach we hailed the landing parties and we sang them up the beach. The beaches of Lacanon, the winter wheat so tall, the dripping, crinkled lichens, and the sea fog drenching all. The platforms of our playground, all shining smooth and worn. The beaches of Lacanon, the home where we were born. I met my mates in the morning, a broken, scattered band. Men shoot us in the water and club us on the land, men drive us to the salt house like silly sheep and tame, and still we sing Lacanon, before the sealers came. We'll down, we'll down to southward, oh, Guvaruska, go. And tell the deep sea viceroys the story of our woe, ere, empty as the shark's egg the tempest flings ashore, the beaches of Lacanon shall know their sons no more. 物語の続きはホームページからお聞きいただけます。またテキスト MP3 ダウンロードも合わせてご利用ください。88thpp.com 88thpp.com